And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And we're off. The regular season is finally upon us. Thomas Drans, Farhan Lalji, and our first regular season episode of the VanCast. A fairly entertaining shootout win by the Edmonton Oilers at home against the Vancouver Canucks. But hey, if you're the Canucks and you go into the third period down 2 nothing, you're probably happy with a point in all of this. And look, this isn't going to be a complete post-game show, but we do have to get into it because we've only got one regular season game to cover, and it turned into a pretty good one, Thomas. I thought it was super entertaining overall, especially, I mean, the first 10 minutes were really great hockey, like was really great hockey. And then it became kind of the Connor McDavid show for the last 10 minutes of that first period. Second period, you know, I thought the Canucks were okay. Uh, They were fine. Um, They weren't generating much, right? For a team that was down, they didn't really start generating until the last 10 minutes. And even then... You know, they weren't controlling the quality of chances. Like, the Oilers were the better team on this one, in this one overall. And and for me, Demko was the difference. I mean, Demko was a, was a huge difference maker for the Edmonton Oilers. I mean, until really the last 10 minutes, I, I don't think the Canucks had much of anything going on. Um, Smith was stopping stuff, but they weren't really five-alarm chances. They were in the first 10 minutes, and then after that, I thought... You know, uh, the, the power play wasn't really clicking. Top line wasn't really generating much. I didn't think the Bo Horvat line had a great game. And when it came down to it, you know, a couple of fortunate goals from defenders. And, and we'll get into all that. But what I want to focus on, Farhan, for me is like the, the moment that that game really resonated. Because as good as the game was, it was kind of a subdued crowd. Like, other than the singing of O Canada, which was raucous, the Oilers fans were pretty quiet on the night. And I wonder if it's just like, we've forgotten how to do this. (laughs) Like, we've forgotten (laughs) how to do atmosphere at a game. And then Ryan Nugent Hopkins scored in the shootout. And the building went nuts. And it was the type of sound, the type of collective noise that I just haven't heard in a long, long time. And I'll be honest with you, like, sitting there, up in that press box, hearing a crowd go nuts over a meaningful goal, even if it was in the shootout, like that is where I want to be. That's like the reminder of why we do this, right? Of like why covering sports matters, the, the, the moment that it moves the collective. And then for Bo Horvat, you know, not having experienced it himself as a player since March 10th, 2020, to then step up, uh, textbook move, great finish, and, and to level the score... I just thought that was a really clutch moment. Like, who else other than Bo Horvat could have stepped up in that moment and scored that goal? Like, for me, yeah, the Kyle Turris and then the Tanner Pearson. And why didn't he pick Hoaglander? I mean, we can get into all that. But 
that moment, the, the R&H, Bo Horvat back and forth, like for me, that meant a lot. And, you know, that that's sort of what it's about being there. And that's what it's about playing these games and, and watching these games as fans. You're getting me excited. I can't wait. I'm going to be down in Seattle for the Kraken first game, which of course nice. will be against the Canucks on the 23rd. So we'll see you there. And then looking forward to the first regular season game back here in Vancouver. So it should be fun. And you look, it seems like this team has a little more to offer than they did a year ago. And, and I'm with you. Edmonton was the better team for the most part in this game, even though the Canucks wound up out shooting Edmonton. When you look at overtime, they actually outshot them for nothing in overtime, mm-hmm. uh, 34, 34 at the end of the reg- at the end of regulation. And in that first 10 minutes, you know, there were some, some good moments. Um, uh, Pedersen, I thought, was buzzing early, you know, even though he's not necessarily got his timing back as far as a shot, as far as attacking the net and scoring. He he still is so dynamic in the offensive zone, and that showed early in that game. Uh, Hoaglander continues to do his thing. Um, You know, even even Oliver Ekman Larson had some some opportunities at the point. And, you know, there was a a really good back check against McDavid by Petey. There were some moments. And then, of course, that that the back check, which then led to the stretch pass to Horvat on the breakaway, who wound up just missing. So there were some moments early on before Edmonton started getting going. And and you mentioned Thatcher Demko. And, you know, let's start there because Demko, look, I I thought the the Cal Turris goal in the shootout was kind of meth, the five hole. But everything else, I thought he was outstanding in this game and quite frankly if you ask me who the best kind of goaltender was in the preseason I'd probably tell you Mikey DiPietro and I'm not suggesting that Demko wasn't great it just looked like he was working on his timing and not really worried about results in the preseason and it showed because his timing and all of it was there in game one yeah it was I mean the Oilers were worth three and a half goals by expected goals and only got two and the two that they got Farhan, like, what are you going to do about those goals? You know, I mean, I mean, just a guy all alone in front after a complete team level defensive breakdown. By the way, Tyler Myers going from goat to absolute like epic cult hero (laughs) for like, first of all, he's blamed mistakenly on that goal. Like that goal, it always looks bad to be the guy in front who's not close to the guy who scores. But like that was such a massive team level breakdown, like. You know, McDavid shook Hughes, which is going to happen. Like, this isn't even on Hughes, but McDavid shakes Hughes and starts going cross seam. Chase on loses his guy completely, which causes Pedersen, who's the down low guy and supposed to be on the goal scorer, to rotate out to Nurse, who's completely left alone and McDavid finds him. And then, I mean, Miller drops his stick. Like, it, it was a complete cluster fuck frankly defensive coverage wise and then Myers is the guy in front who who doesn't rotate quickly enough to a guy who's like not even his guy he should rotate to like that should be Miller's guy but he drops his stick um Myers might be the least culpable Canuck on the ice on that play I mean other than maybe Pedersen and you know Canuck's Twitter explodes like Myers oh my god and then of course he hits Duncan Keith and, and goes from go to hero but but you know the the Dreisaitl one touched Dreisaitl receives, not just receives, a beautiful cross-team feed from McDavid on the power play, but he one-touches it to, like, through Oliver Ekman's, uh, Larson's legs to Zach Hyman completely uh, open on the on the goal mouth. I mean, what can Demko do about either of those goals? Nothing. And yeah. for Smith, I mean, yeah, one's a deflection off R&H, whatever. I mean, that that's going to happen. Good screen by Pearson. Good shot by Ekman Larson gets it through. Um, you know, that's not on him, but that, that Hughes goal, you got to have, like he was completely cheating. He completely lost the plot. It wasn't a good angle shot. It wasn't a particularly hard shot. It just, Hughes knew he couldn't see it and got it off fast. And I mean, heads up play by Hughes. I'm not taking anything away from him. Full value for the goal, but you know, you can't let that in. Um, yeah, I mean, Smith was good overall on the whole, but Edmonton had the more dangerous shots. Edmonton controlled play better at five on five. They generated more in terms of high danger, in terms of expected goals, and a lot more. Like, an awful lot more. It was really two to one until the last five to seven minutes of the game when score effects really come into play. Um, And then, of course, the Canucks were better in overtime. So, you know, for me, that was a Demko... Like Demko stole that point for me because he took it from a better team that was leading late and the other goalie let in a couple of, of soft ones and specifically one really soft one late. I mean, for me, that's that's a goalie point 
And good, you're going to need those. The Canucks are going to need a lot of those, frankly. Um, I didn't see anything that disabused me of my priors about this team and their issues, even though I did think that Tyler Myers had a strong game, not just the Keith moment, but overall. Um, you know, I thought Kyle Burroughs looked useful. Like, I thought he looked like a smart, heads-up player, a guy who was probably going to be safe playing some of those third-pair minutes. Like, I, I thought they got some good performances, but, you know, fundamentally, I thought Demko was their best player and not by a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you talk about that second power play goal. I mean, Ekman Larson and and Pullman were both completely twisted in knots, and it happened so quickly. It just really is the best of the Oilers. And, you know, when you talk about the numbers, we can go through them real quickly just in terms of uh, scoring chances for and against 28-25 in favor of Edmonton. But high danger was 28-17. And as much as we felt that Vancouver came on strong in the third period, it was 9-1 to Edmonton for scoring chances in the third period and two to one as far as high danger as well. So they certainly look good in that regard. And, and when you, when you break it down from a, from a, pl- a per player perspective, uh, you know, uh, Quinn Hughes, who was out there a lot, I mean, 27 plus minutes for Quinn Hughes. And there were some times in, in certain matchups when he struggled, he was 38 in terms of course, he four for the game. Uh, so not ideal, but look, I think, uh, you know, he was noticeable and was able to generate and, and did some good things as well. So there were some things to like, but I, I you know, I want to get to, to Demko. Can you compare what you saw today versus what you saw earlier in the season? Or sorry, let me take that back versus what you saw last season when he was at his best, that mid-February to mid-March pre-COVID stretch that earned him his contract. Yeah, I mean, I don't think so. The good thing for the Canucks about that Demko performance is that I don't think he was at his best. Like, I don't think he was in that dominant zone necessarily. I think he played a good game. What I like about Demko when he's on so much is how conscientious he is about his body language. Like I loved that glove save he made. And instead of sort of flipping it out the way a goalie usually does to sell a glove save, he held it across his body just firmly and sort of got in the path of the Oilers skater made him, made him step around and like acknowledge that Demko had snagged it on a point blank chance. Like I love that stuff. That's what that's what Andre Vasilevsky does, right? Where he like stares down, he makes those crazy faces, you know, like he just like projects an aura of being unbeatable. And and that's not coincidence. I'm not reading something into something that's not there. Like that is what Ian Clark wants from his goalies, right? That there's a idea that you should carry yourself with a certain swagger because it translates to the team, that that's part of your responsibility as the starting goaltender. I thought Demko had that going. I thought he stopped absolutely everything that he possibly could have stopped and, and made a few like real robberies over the course of the night. Um, I liked all of that from him. And, and I look, I just thought it was a really strong game from him. And I yet, and yet I don't think it was like him at his most spectacular by any means. Uh, coming back to Quinn, you know, the thing that I liked the best about Hughes's game overall was the, you know, I mean, some of the underlying numbers aren't the way that you'd want them to look or that they looked in, in Quinn's rookie season. But, you know, at the end of the day, he saw an awful lot of Connor McDavid, like eight and a half minutes head to head against a McDavid, like a loaded McDavid line with Dreisaitl on it as well. Um, the Canucks don't get outscored in that matchup. So even though Edmonton outgenerated Vancouver in that matchup, like, you know, there's no damage done, even five. Yeah, but five. he didn't. Here's the thing for me. He didn't look like he did last year. That was more important that he not right. look like he did in year one. Well, because and, and I last year there were those it. moments where the puck was just falling off his stick in his own zone. He was physically mismatched. Those moments weren't there. And I think that's important. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. And, you know, I, I mean, there was sort of one play where I think McDavid because of the threat that he posed, like like Hughes tried to body him a little more than he should. It was right before McDavid, Hughes had the inside track to McDavid. And if he just used his feet the way he does a million times over the course of a season, they probably get a clean exit. But because it's McDavid, it's like the only player in the world where Hughes would be like, maybe I can't get away from him. Like maybe I can't make that separation. You know, and so he and so he put his body into him and then McDavid was able to use his strength and speed to sort of get back in the matchup, make it a scrambled puck. Oilers come out with it a few a few battles later, like a few 50 50 battles later. For me, that's not even on Quinn. Like, I mean, I wouldn't I'm not nearly as slippery as Quinn Hughes. I wouldn't feel confident that I could get the separation I need. So, you know, I mean, of course, like 
you know, of course, McDavid makes you play him a little bit differently. And, and I think that's sort of part of his value. Like I look up and down the Canucks lineup and things they did today and things that they changed and things that I don't know that we'll see again, you know, like Dowling on PP2. And I wonder how much of that is related to the fact that the Oilers come right back after penalty killing situations with McDavid, right? Like how much of Dowling on the power play, which we... You know, like Hoaglander was in the bumper every practice they did. All of a sudden, we see Dowling and no Hoaglander on PP2. And it's like, how much of that is because Green and the coaching staff know that the moment their power play expires and second unit's usually on when the power play expires, like McDavid's coming out. So you kind of need a centerman on the ice, right? Like, I mean, for me, that's uh, part of part of the value of a guy who is uh, an absolute apex predator in this league is, is he kind of adjust and play him differently. But overall against the toughest matchup this league has to offer, right? I thought Hughes looked really, really good, like was extremely effective. And yeah, there was a play about you th- like to see three that. and a half minutes into the game where McDavid had gathered speed through the neutral zone. And it was a play that ended up with Hughes sliding into Demko. But at the blue line, the play he made to knock the puck loose and from McDavid and slow him down. Right. It, it was a key play, right? I mean, it was early, but it kind of set the tone for, I think, was a, a matchup that he was looking forward to and wasn't going to necessarily be intimidated by. And, and again, I, I just saw a lot more. You're talking about when he more. got deposited into the net? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right. That's he won okay. That I'll, I'll take that because it didn't lead to a scoring chance, right? He made the play that prevented a scoring chance. If he winds up in his own net, so be it. No, and if, if McDavid's frustrated with you, you're doing something right. And... So I, you know, I liked, I really liked Quinn Hughes' game tonight. Like I really liked it. I know the underlying numbers won't back that up, but I thought he did an excellent job in a really tough matchup and was absolutely essential to the Canucks coming out with a point. I mean, just, just totally crucial, even though, you know, uh, I mean, in the, in the head to head minutes that, uh, Oliver Ekman, Larson and Myers, battled that line the the results were somewhat better somewhat more favorable from a Canucks perspective like Hughes did the bulk of that heavy lifting with Pullman I thought they came out really well in that matchup um, despite the fact that the Oilers had theirs in terms of chances Uh, I'll take that game from from Quinn Hughes every night I thought he was really good hey the guy that dominated Connor McDavid was actually Jack Rathbone just so you know (laughs) <laughs> statistically at least in 230 actually it was kyle burrows because mcdavid was 20 he was 20 percent coursey four in a minute and 18 seconds against kyle burrows they were protected pretty significantly oh, right yeah. i mean if you know they, they played some against the second line but really that was an awful lot of uh, bottom six comp for that pair and that's totally fine like i thought jack were you surprised had a they game. got the nod Based on what I, we saw with, with shent were you surprised i was too totally until i saw rathbone on pp2 I was, and you know, I did sort of anticipate it right before Green confirmed it because Rathbone was still on PP2 and I thought, you know, I don't think they'd be playing games with us this late. Like maybe he's a Besser placeholder, maybe, but I I mean, the way that Besser was checking in with the training staff as he twirled around in Morning Skate suggested like as Morning Skate went on, I became more and more convinced that Besser was not playing and I became more and more suspicious that... Rathbone and Burroughs might be. And and I thought, you know, as I sort of worked through that in my head, I thought, yeah, I mean, they're the faster pair, right? They're the stronger skaters than Hunt and Shen. Like, that makes sense. And so, you know, yeah, no, I was surprised, though, overall. And, uh, I mean, I was surprised by a few things overall. I think I was, I mean, I'm still surprised by Matthew Highmore on, on, in the top nine. Like, that's something that's... Um, you know, going to take some getting used to. <laughs> I well, don't think I'm ever going to like that. As soon as Brock Besser gets back in. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Actually, I saw your picture on Instagram earlier today with you and Wallace, and I think you need to make sure you get some... <laughs> Get something for Manscaped, buddy. I got, I got to shave my shoulders. Um, <laughs> you, you might, you might cute, need to do that. Hey, listen, the guy that's going to get free shaves for the rest of his life is Tyler Myers. Where did that <laughs> hit come from? I loved that. That was so good. And, I mean, Canucks fans just ate it up because... Yeah, finally, Duncan Keith is catchable. <laughs> they could never catch him five, ten years ago, right? But now they can. Myers just tagged him. That's as clean a hit, too, as you can ever see from two players with that level of size discrepancy, right? Yeah, and, and Myers had to answer for it right away, right? He, and uh, was it Sevier that wound up fighting him? Yeah, and good on good on Steves. I, uh, I chatted with Steves today, actually, because, of course, I worked with him in Florida, but also uh, Steves trains with Brandon Sutter in the summer, right? And so I was just asking him, you know, if they'd caught up and sort of how it went. And he was just talking to me about, um, you know, what from his experience, right? Like it, it, explaining that, you know, Sutter had been sort of working through something that had lingered, but hadn't prevented him from skating. And then just to see if maybe some rest would help, he, he kind of took a week off. And I think at that point, you know, it just became apparent, right? And it's just this roulette wheel, right? For especially when you get hit as a, as a player like most of the Canucks were when when they got hit, whose immune system is naive to the virus, right? It, I mean, no matter what shape you're in, there's this sort of roulette where it's like some some guys, you know, have it easy and and are doing yoga by day two on their patio uh, while in quarantine, and 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 some guys, you know, get it hard, and and some guys get it mildly, or or you know mildly relatively speaking and then five months later it's still an issue for them and you know just speaks to the seriousness of this right and and how important it is to be vaccinated as a as a course of action to make sure your immune system is not encountering something completely foreign to it um, that it can kind of you know know how to process in a way that prevents uh, more severe outcomes but um, you know Hopefully for hopefully for Sutter, this is overcome at, at some point and we'll see him. Um, but obviously also his ability to play this season or not is far from the most important thing here. Absolutely. And and um, yeah, we, we definitely hope he gets back into the lineup. And as for Tyler Myers, you know, for all the criticism he's received over his contract, I think he's going to be getting applause for the rest of his time as a Vancouver Canuck based on that hit alone, given the preseason reaction to Duncan Keith. And, and as he should, I mean, a uh, good way to flip the narrative, right? Like <laughs> good way to flip the narrative for a guy who I don't think has been a fan favorite really in his two seasons in Vancouver to this point. Um, you know, I think people will be talking about Myers a little bit differently tomorrow and good for him. Yeah, no question about it. I uh, want to ask you about a couple of other things. One of the things that Travis Green said after the game, and, and rightly so, the power play wasn't good. They did wind up getting one late, but and they went back and forth a little bit as far as defensemen with PP1, moving Hughes and ekman Larson around a little bit, and then they wound up getting the goal from PP2 with, with Hoaglander eventually uh, on the ice and, and getting it to, um, or, sorry, he didn't make the pass, but obviously got a point on ekman Larson's goal. What would you make of what you saw with the power play? You know, a lot of the same issues that I saw last year, I think, right? Like a little bit too stationary, um, a little bit too predictable, a little bit slow, moving things cross seam. And yet, you know, and, and, and sorry, and one other thing is a little bit too perimeter oriented, right? Like a, a lot of things happening with the three guys high and, and not as much like, do you remember when this power play was really clicking, especially when Toffoli came in and there was a lot of that sort of down low action where the net front guy who was Toffoli at the time would sort of uh, drop down below the goal line. And instead of it just going up and, you know, up and around the three high guys, all of a sudden it would be like Miller and Toffoli interplay. And then, you know, that would create opportunities for, for Horvat and on and on. Like they're just, it, it, just a little stationary. You know what I really want to see on PP one 
Do you remember uh, Burnaby Joe? What what Joe Sackick used to do all the time, where he'd like cut into the middle. Um, you know, he'd like cr- cross seams, and he'd do this on the power play too for the Avs, even though they weren't in a one-three-one, and it's not a perfect analogy. But he'd like skate centrally, and and once he did that, everyone started to lose it because that wrist shot was such a weapon. Um, you know, his, his lefty wrist shot was one of the best in hockey, and and I often think like I don't really know why, for example, we don't see a Pedersen. Fake one-timer, right? Because the, the, the defenseman is always going to sell out for that, right? Like the gravity that Pedersen has when he winds up for what people think is going to be a one-timer is just massive. If he does that, he can take a step inside. And the moment you do that, penalty kills are going to lose it, are going to freak out. They're going to be completely disorganized and discombobulated. And I, I'd love to see them find ways for Pedersen to attack while carrying the puck cross seam a little bit more easier said than done, but that that's something that I'd love to see as just like a way to start rotation. Um, he doesn't even have to carry it. Like he doesn't have to actually get cross seam because it's really hard to do with how compact penalty kills are these days. But even to just start it will create all sorts of weird confusion and, and create a ton of options down low. I'd love to see that. Um, but yeah, I mean, more than anything, I just thought it was a little too perimeter oriented, a little bit too slow in its movement. I think about, Pedersen getting that cross seam pass from Miller, right? And he took a, a high high danger, or not a high danger, but a relatively dangerous wrist shot on Mike Smith. And but it but it just it was too slow, right? Like by the time Pedersen took the shot, Smith was set, and Smith was pretty good until he wasn't on Wednesday night. He's, it's tough to beat a guy who's set. So you know that's sort of. That's sort of where, I mean, I think the Canucks power play needs to be better. Just move, move the puck faster across seam and, and get some movement going, whether, whether you take my idea or not, like something like that, um, you know, just to get more down low, more high low pass action. Uh, I thought that was a little bit, uh, you know, I, I think probably the right word stilted or, or just, just too slow, not, not natural um, and easy um, in terms of their overall puck movement as a unit, especially with PP1. And, and so it goes. I mean, with Pedersen and Hughes missing so much of camp, I don't think it's a shocker that that's sort of an area of the Canucks game that might have to catch up a little bit. Yeah, for me, it just looked an awful lot like last year. I mean, personnel notwithstanding, you've got a different person coaching the power play and Jason King instead of Newell Brown. And yet the setup, all of it looked the same to me. And also, I think earlier last season, I don't think Pedersen was aggressive enough with his shot to underscore your point on that one, that it was just too slow getting there. I just think I've seen him practice the one timer a lot since he's been here, like in practice. And and I would have just loved to see him to have seen him a little bit more aggressive with that when it came to him. And then that cross seam pass he made to chase on and chase on just waited forever before pulling the trigger so i yeah i think there's yeah. a lot of work to be done there and it'll look different again once brock besser gets integrated which will be a good thing as well yeah and, and i mean natural statric has them with one shot in the slot on the power play uh, or one attempt from the slot the entire game um certainly you'd want to see more than that um you know you also have you know Pedersen at four attempts you like to see that but uh, like Chase on had three, JT Miller had three. Like I'd like to see Elias Pettersson be a higher volume option for them in terms of in terms of attempts, right? Three three power play shots I like, but you know I like it less when the proportion of shots between Pettersson and Chase on is identical, right? Like I want sure. I want it to look like the Montreal Canadiens power play almost where. You know, Shea Weber last year was just bombing. And look, their, their power play wasn't great by any means. But I'm just saying, like, you create a primary and it opens up space for other for other things. Like, that's been the genius of the Washington Capitals power play for years and years. Um, so, you know, and, and then uh, obviously Kucherov's the absolute best uh, flank playmaker in the NHL, like by far. And, and one thing that he does that I, I think Pedersen could do is just sort of changes a ton of angles by, by holding the puck more and moving it. Um, you know, I, I, they, they need to move the puck faster from the flank. So I don't want to see too much of it, but if you move with purpose, it can ac- accomplish the same as quick crossing passes. Um, you know, th- those are two things that I, I'd sort of look at is, is more attempts from Pedersen and maybe more, 
movement overall, especially on that flank. He's just so critical. I, I don't mean to um, you know, zero in on him beyond the fact that his success on the power play, everything kind of flows from there, in my view, when it comes to Vancouver's work five on four. One other thing that looked a lot like last year was the Canucks taking a too many men penalty. We saw way too much of it last year. They led the North Division in that. Travis Green was asked about it after the game, and he gave Mike Smith credit more than necessarily taking blame because of his ability to get the puck up quick. How did you see it? Yeah, I mean, if you go watch the play, and I did, um, you know, it's a soft dump in to the goaltender, um, you know, from Vasily Pod Colson, right? And Mike Smith quick ups it and it hits the back of a Canucks player's skate and boom, they, they get called. And, you know, Green also said in that answer, he said that was a big focus of our pre-scout. And so, you know, I mean, I, I sounded a little bit frustrated, I'd say, to have taken it and fair enough. You know, the too many men penalty issue is an interesting one because the Canucks did lead the North division in it, although they ended up sort of ju- just in the mat- thick of things in the top five last year. But if you go back and look at Green's tenure as Canucks coach, right? By bench minors, the Canucks are 16th in the NHL over Green's entire tenure, which is average, right? They're an average team at taking bench minors over the course of a large sample of games, like four years worth of games. And so that to me doesn't suggest that it's a big issue. Now, obviously it was a big issue last season. Um, maybe, maybe if this continues, it, it, it's, it's signal more than noise, but I strongly suspect that overall too many men penalties are, you know, an example of random distribution, like are more than anything, the result of bad luck. Like sometimes a good play like Mike Smith pulled off on Wednesday can cause it. But more often, my guess is, is that it's is that it's bad luck as opposed to an indication of team discipline, um, at least as a raw figure. So I, I'm not giving a ton of credence. I asked the question, so I'm not ignoring it, but I'm not giving it a ton of credence as like a, a coaching issue that this team has personally. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Nils Hoaglander, I thought he was buzzing tonight. For much of this one, winds up with two assists in this game. When you look at him sitting there on the third line, how long does that last, knowing that Brock Besser is going to be back at some point, probably within the next game or two? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I think they missed Besser a ton tonight. Like, I think they missed him a ton tonight. Um, And obviously, I mean, Besser's an incredible player. Like, Besser's a really, really good player. Um, and that line, I mean, doesn't it feel like this lineup, we're just going to see lotto line roll again. And, and isn't the fact that Pedersen played McDavid straight up tonight, you know, isn't that an indication that we're really going to see the lotto line used as a top line? Um, you know, w- w- once he's back, like, man, they rode Pedersen tonight in terms of minutes, in terms of, you know, not protecting him from matchups. Like they, you know, Pedersen's number one guy now. And You know what? This brings me to something that I want to note, actually, Farhan, because I thought about it a lot today. I observed the Oilers morning skate, you know, 1030 mountain time today. And then I went and did their availability. And Leon Dreisaitl, I I covered Leon Dreisaitl at Penticton. (laughs) I've covered and watched this guy uh, for years. And... You know, I haven't covered him every day, but in some ways it's like, you know, when, when like 
whether it's an animal or a child, like you're, you're, if you're the parent or you live with the animal, if you live with your puppy, like you don't notice how much it necessarily has grown over time. And then someone who sees it once a month, like see, it's like, wow, holy cow. You know, like when you were growing up and every time you saw a distant relative, they'd be like, wow, you've grown. You'd be like, oh, that's so annoying, you know, but it's because <laughs> they haven't seen you in a while and you have grown a ton. Like Dreisaitl is someone I've covered at 19, at 18. Like, you know, to see him today on that podium, just chewing scenery, right? Just like absolutely holding court, complete control of a pretty difficult media market himself. You know, at one point, people ask him about McDavid's work uh, improving, like what's he improved over the summer? Everyone knows McDavid's work ethic. And and Dreisaitl makes a joke that he's been working on his one-timer, right? Which is which is Dreisaitl's bread and butter. Dreisaitl's the shooter of the two, or at least the more natural shooter of the two. And, and you know, he says, yeah, he's been fluffing them pretty decently, right? Like, grinds McDavid. Like, how many guys in this league, how many guys on that Oilers roster have the weight to grind McDavid and have a whole room laughing, right? And, you know, you get this sense that no chance, no chance would Dreisaitl grind anyone else on that team, right? He's got one peer, and it's, and it's McDavid. And... As I watched this guy in just complete control, right, and thought about what he is at this point in this league, which is a complete machine, right? Like, uh, you know he's going to be good for 100 points. You know he's going to be healthy throughout the season. Um, you know he's going to be a top five player in this league year after year. And it's it's because of, you know, this maturity, this work ethic, the fact that him and McDavid push each other, almost Sedin-like in their approach to that. Um, you know, I, I actually asked Alex Chason about it because I was so struck by it uh, after his Zoom availability in the morning. And, and Chason dropped, you know, a, a last dance comparison, right? Before noting that, you know, although in contrast with Jordan, they're actually really good people, <laughs> um, which I thought was was cute and dead on. And, you know, it, it just occurred to me like Dreisaitl is only 25, but the distance between being 22, right? like Pedersen is and figuring out exactly who you are as a human being, exactly who you are in this league. Um, and 25, like that's a huge gap in terms of that self assuredness, you know, and Pedersen has all the talent in the world, but the difference between Pedersen, a player who I believe to be, special and almost surely based on his historical comps, a player of, you know, some potentially historic significance in the NHL and a player like Dreisaitl where that potential has been realized and where it's done every year and he's healthy every year and he's just lights out every year. Like that is still a distance. There is still a growth factor there. And you know, that's an exciting prospect to cover from our perspective, Farhan, and, and should be an exciting prospect for Canucks fans too because because you get to track it and Pedersen's got all the skill in the world to develop into you know not a generational talent not not, not McDavid but you know uh, one of the best centermen in this game and yet to get there you know it's not just going to take great performances like it's also going to take time right it's also going to take growing up and growing into himself and and that was just a sort of a thought that really struck me from morning skate with Dreisaitl um, I've, I've, I've digressed so significantly far on that. I haven't answered your question and I forgot what it was. So <laughs> which was about Nils Holander, me. who after the game, Travis Green said, look, I like him for 14 <laughs> to 18 really minutes a game. Holander? And I do believe he's got the ability <laughs> to jumpstart a number of other lines, right? Like I can put him out there here and there. I can put him with the top line. I can put him wherever. And he's got that, that ability to, you know, sure. Maybe he's got to grow into himself. Maybe he'll become dry saddle. Maybe that's where you were going with it. I don't know. No, but I don't. I, I think I just I wanted to sell were. my dry saddle anecdote. Um, but the, it's a good anecdote. <laughs> the Hoaglander. I was riveted. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, Hoaglander though, on the third line, like, you know, I, I, Travis Green's answer speaks volumes. Like, I have a sense that he can help out a number of lines, right? I mean, that's why he's there. That's why he's there and not with Horvat and not with Pedersen. Like, he's there because they need someone to drive a third line, right? And Hoaglander can maybe do it. He certainly looked like he could in spurts um, for most of the game, in fact. 
Um, and, you know, I do, I do think like that Quinn Hughes goal, the tying goal, yeah, it was the result of a really clever heads-up play by Quinn Hughes taking advantage of Mike Smith's cheating in, in just one moment. Like, one moment in which he wasn't as dialed in as he was the rest of the game, and it costs his team. But, you know, the work on the entry, if you go back and watch that play unfold, like, the work on the entry with Miller, with Hoaglander, with Pedersen is really good, too. And that's the type of, like, neutral zone push, like, small be- small area battle Um albeit in transition, that I don't think the Canucks were really winning throughout much of the game. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I like I like the fit of playing Hoaglander on a third line, almost like a young Matt Zuccarello or something, right? Like a, a, a bottom six engine with some offensive pop. I think I like that idea a fair bit. The, the, the thing is, though, is that ultimately I do think that line's going to need something a little more dynamic than what, what Matthew Highmore can offer, if that's really going to pop. And while Besser returning presumably pushes guys down the lineup, like if the guy you're pushing down the lineup's Alex Chase on, like I don't think there's a ton of there there, right? So maybe it's eventually Tyler Mott. Like maybe it's Mott, Dickinson, Hoaglander. And I think you kind of can begin to like the look of that line a bit. Um, you know, you, you match Hoaglander. But the, the problem is, is that what Hoaglander does so well is in zone and what Mott, when he returns, like typically what he feasts on is that against the grain scoring, right? So not feasts, but certainly like eats. <laughs> um, you know, that's... <laughs> well, that is his game, four checking. Yeah. But, but I mean, but I mean, feasts. I've made him, I've made him into Johnny Gaudreau or something like one of the great against this. Like, no, I mean, you know, um, grabs a sub sub on the go. Um, anyway, hey, let's, let's let's talk about the fourth line, okay? Yeah. And I know that uh, that uh, Vasily Podkolz and someone you wanted to get into, and just collectively, uh, that that threesome, you know, got got protected minutes as you'd expect, and very little ice time. Uh, I think uh, Lamico ten oh seven, Podkolz seven thirty four, and Justin Dowling nine and a half minutes, which is probably what you'd expect. But uh, in the first game of his NHL career, what'd you make of Vasily Podkolz? Is he ready for this? Is he ready for seven minutes? Sure. Right? Is he ready for much more than that? I don't think so. Like, I don't think so. And I know this is an unpopular take among Canucks fans, but, you know, I see a lot of bad angle shots. I see a lot of touches that don't quite go to the right places. Like, I see a guy learning how to be effective in the NHL. And I see a steeper learning curve than perhaps we'd hoped for in this marketplace. And that's okay. Like, that's okay. I I also see a guy who's so physically developed and so clearly hardworking and trying to do the right things. I just think there's things he doesn't know about the intricacies of the NHL game. And and I do think his feet are going to need to improve too. Like, I do think that stride, um, you know, I, I do think that's going to be something where if he's going to really pop off as a player is, is going to need some improvement. And that's not atypical for young guys in this league, right? So, you know, my guess is, is that the Vasily Pod Colson we're talking about in February is a very different player from the Vasily Pod Colson we're seeing right now. But I think it's going to be a slow road in terms of getting him there. And I don't see him earning the type of rope where you're going to see like lots of 12 or 15 minute games from him. I I do think you're going to see fourth line ice time. I do think you're going to see fits and starts and errors and, um, you know, moments where the feet aren't quite working. And I don't think you're going to see a ton of production. And so, you know, I do think it's going to be incumbent on the market, but also the people who talk to in this market, like you, you and I, Farhan, to, to keep expectations reasonable. Like, you know, he's a 20 year old kid. He's played one like professional regular season game in North America in his career. Uh, you know, he was known as a heads up player in the KHL, like a really smart, disciplined worker. And, you know, he's going to improve as a result. Like he's got the character, he's got the work rate, he's got the skills. He's already good in terms of like using his body and winning one-on-one battles and occasionally pulling some interesting deeks. But, you know, learning the intricacies of the NHL game, learning how to help a team win, learning what types of touches are helpful, what types of shots are helpful, like that's all going to be a work in progress and it's going to take some time. And, and when I say time, I don't mean weeks. I don't mean games. I mean months. 
like months. And so it's interesting though, when, when he went through this process in the KHL, we dismissed what he was going through, that the KHL was being ridiculous with how they were handling his ice time and how they were handling his development because they knew he was on his way to the NHL. So they didn't really care and they didn't want to invest, but eventually they did invest. And at the end of his last season there, he really put on a bit of a show, especially in the playoffs. So maybe there's some there there in terms of how they actually approached him because it's going to happen at the same rate in the NHL. I mean, I disagree with that. <laughs> well, you told, I don't like, think that, that's fair, but like, I, I understand that they weren't going <laughs> to give him much ice time given his circumstance, but by the end of it, ultimately they still did. Right. Yeah. He eventually got there, but the, I mean, the canary in the coal mine here for me is, uh, his former teammate, like Ivan Morozov, who's a second round pick in 2018 of the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, you know, kind of a similar ish player, right? Right handed sort of centerman, um, played a lot with, uh, with Pod Colson. And, you know, like last year, played in the KHL, had 31 points in 55 games, right? Just like an outrageous haul, like outproduced Pod Colson by a fair bit. He's, he's a year older than him. And, you know, this year, now that it's clear that once his deal lapses, he's going to go over to Vegas, right? Like now he's played four games for the KHL team playing fourth line minutes and six for the VHL team, like their sort of top minor league team. And this was a guy with 31 points for them, like 31 points a year ago. Like he didn't forget how to do it at the age of 21. You know, he played, he played for Russia in the world championships last year. Like, is a real player, a really good prospect. So, you know, that tells you everything you need to know about the Pod Colson experience. And, and look, I just think the NHL is a different game. And, and Pod Colson's particular skill set, when, when it works, like when he reaches his zenith in the NHL, is going to be a detail-oriented grinders game, in my opinion. Like he's probably going to be a middle six forward, not a top line forward. Maybe, maybe he gets there as like a press type player, like a Zach Hyman type player. And, and what a find that would be for the Canucks. Like, that would be massive. A huge development. But it's not going to happen overnight for him. And, and I think that's now clear. And, you know, I haven't seen anything throughout the preseason or in training camp or in game one um, that sort of convinced me that, you know, he should be playing with Horvat and playing 20 minutes a game. Like, I don't think he's there yet. And... You know, that, that, that's not to say that Chase on is, <laughs> but, um, but you know, I, I do think he's going to be brought along slowly. I don't think that's wrong. Meanwhile, his next opportunity is going to be two days from now or on Friday, I should say, against Zach McEwen and the Philadelphia Flyers, the first of a back-to-back -back the Canucks go Friday into Philly and Saturday into Detroit. Just quickly, just some quick thoughts before we go on the Canucks losing Zach. Yeah, I mean... You know, a lot of teams lose players on waivers, right? And a lot of teams fall in love with their prospects. And this is like Tampa Bay's big competitive advantage. Tampa Bay gives up on guys so fast. Like they just move on from guys and trade them for value so fast relative to the rest of the league. And that's how you get marginal value. Like if a guy peaks, if you think there's any chance that a guy peaks, it's, it's really important not to fall in love with that peak and like project in a starry-eyed way what they could be beyond that. And to, and to fix value where you can. Like, there have been a lot of people around this league. I wasn't at all shocked that Zach McEwen got claimed. Like, there have been people around this league who have valued uh, what Zach McEwen brings. Um, you know, I, I talked to, um, you know, an NHL front office contact today who suggested to me that, you know, if, if the club had decided to shop him prior to training camp beginning, if they'd been a little bit more strategic about it, like they thought he was a third or fourth round pick worth of trade value this offseason, like as recently as this offseason. And that was after a pretty unimpressive or uninspired performance in 2021 where he wasn't a regular. So, you know, look, I get it. The organization was intent on giving him a clean slate and, you know, they invested a ton of time into his development, but sometimes fixing your costs, like fixing a haul is better than the ultimate outcome. And, you know, at, at some point you look down and, and, you know, it's called the endowment effect. Teams fall in love with what they have. But when you look down and you think like Jake Vertanen wasn't monetized for anything, 
you know, uh, Tyler Madden was, but Toffoli wasn't retained. So <laughs> it was sort of a, a win turned into a loss. Uh, Adam Gaudet becomes Matthew Highmore. Like Cole Lind, there were times where he would have had value. Um, Jonah Gadjevich after those World Junior Championships. Zach McEwen. And it's like, you go you go down that list of players who at various points, like Vertanen at various points, could have been had, could have been, could have acquired a second round pick. Um, you know, Adam Gaudet definitely could have been the centerpiece of like a bigger deal after that 2019-20 campaign, even with a weak performance in the playoffs. Um, you know, you go, you go down that list and, you know, at the end of it, the only thing the club has to show for it's Matthew Highmore, right? And, and again, this is not a unique story, but it is a very Vancouver story in terms of, you know, sort of symbolizing a, an overall, um, inability to monetize assets when they might have value and, and ultimately, uh, not getting something of value back. And, and that's why too, like the Yolevi thing, you know, Yolevi, because of his injuries, I don't think his value was ever much higher. <laughs> like, I don't think he ever really, he's not an example of like what I'm talking about. I, I mean, because he was unimpressive in his draft plus one season and then suffered mul multiple injuries. Like, I don't know that there was ever a point where they would have got a ton of value for him, but at least you get Yuho Lamico and that's something like that's something. And you know, that's that it's just too bad that that hasn't happened with some of the other players that the club has lost for little or nothing over the course of the past, um, you know, two years, especially. We'll see what Zach turns into in Philadelphia again that game on Friday. And we've got Detroit on Saturday. We will pod early next week. And then after that, three more games for the Canucks in Buffalo Tuesday, in Chicago Thursday, and then in Seattle on Saturday. I'm looking forward to catching up with you down in the Emerald City for that one. Likewise, I'm sure the man. folks in Seattle will put on a fantastic show. And if you want to hear more about what they're doing and what else is going on around the league, you can check out Rob Pizzo from CBC Sports and Jesse Granger, along with Sarah Sivia. They've got the debut episode of the Athletic Hockey Show Roundtable. That's this week at The Athletic. And once again, thank you for listening to this episode of The VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast, podcast platforms. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. And when you review, I can tell you right now, Drancer and I like each other. We do. Very much. There you go. Almost he, he doesn't like me quite as much as he likes Wallace, but he likes me. <laughs> you can, I really you can like subscribe you. to the Athletic Audio <laughs> Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all that bonus content from our entire network, including Wallace. Start with a 30-day free trial and then just 99 cents a month after that. Right now, annual subscriptions to the Athletic are 50% off when you visit theathletic.com slash the vancast thanks for doing this rancher travel safe we'll talk again next week can't wait man it's gonna be an interesting weekend uh flying to the united states tomorrow first time crossing a border for me in a long time bud so hopefully i do it, it every day smoothly. it's not so bad no okay <laughs> good to know thanks for listening thanks for downloading and we'll talk to you again real soon <laughs>